This is Leave Your Mark. I'm Vince Cortez, and today's guest is Mark S. Johnson. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. His journalist career took root in high school when he would work at a number of papers as a science reporter and Providence Town Advocate in his new position with the Washington Post. Mark, thanks for being our guest here today. Thanks so much for having me, Vince. It's a real pleasure. Hi there, and welcome. Now it's time for America's favorite podcast, Leave Your Mark, with your host, Vince Cortez. If it's fly, loose fit it, it's Cortez. If freeze and chop is in it, it's Cortez. Leave Your Mark is about inspiring the world, one guest at a time. Pass the word from Brooklyn to Pittsburgh, from urban to suburb, it's Cortez, you heard? And here is our host, Vince Cortez. Now, you have a very interesting story. Um, I, I, I always reference this when I talk to my guests that when they're young and they know what it is their life's work is or what they're attracted to being their gift, it's always a, a, the, the story to me gets rich right away. No meandering right into the meat and potatoes of it. So what I like to do is just touch on you're uh, born in New York and raised in Brookline, Massachusetts. That's right. Uh, Life got very interesting for you because in the middle school, you were in Oxford and Cambridge, England. That's correct. And you were in the middle school at that age. So just real quick, what was that like going from America at that age into another culture? Well, it was uh, it was a real challenge. My parents had just gotten a divorce. And so we went with my mother, who was studying uh, English history. It was one of those things you sort of discover that you um, you don't have, kids don't have a choice in a lot of things. And when my mom said uh, we were going to England, I said, no, I'm not going. <laughs> wow. So you, you end up going. How long were you there for? We were there three and a half years. Wow. Okay. So three and a half years now you return to the United States, you come back to Brookline? That's right. Actually, we had been in um, Cambridge, Mass., before we left and ended up in Brookline when we came back. Now, when you're, when this is going on and you're seven years old, I mean, what was your initial thought when you knew this was going to be a new reality? I think I was very confused. Um, for children, your parents are your whole life, you know, probably through age seven or eight. And I remember that um, we went and lived with my grandmother in um, Utica, New York, briefly after they'd, uh, while they were getting, my parents were getting divorced. And I remember that when I saw my father afterwards about maybe, I hadn't seen him for maybe six months, he'd grown a mustache. And I actually didn't believe it was him. Uh, wow. For years, I believed that he died and that this was all part of some uh, elaborate hoax that people had sort of played on me. Oh the my! Guy was like because wow. he had a mustache and he was kind of a different person. He was more laid back and his you know, whole energy changed. How old were you with that when that had happened? That was about uh, eight years old, I think. Okay, so know. slightly after the divorce. Wow, right. that's really interesting. So let's work our way through this. So this makes an incredible uh, experience. Now your mom Joyce. You said she uh, she's a historian, and then your dad Lawrence was an attorney. Correct. So uh, you have a, a siblings Lisa, George, Laura, and Daniel. 
so how much of your life was with your siblings and how much were you being moved around because as you said it's not really your choice you're you're a child at this point so it's just kind of is what's happening well i most of my life was with my um my sister lisa who's a year younger than me and she's um the only one that's a a, a full-blood relative okay um, we were a very modern kind of family there were um not there was not just the first divorce but there were uh multiple divorces um, on my dad's side and uh, remarriages. My mom remarried. So along the way, we got to know these other people and, and you know, they're relatives, you love them, mm. but it's a bit of a process. It's like, it's like meeting um, friends for the first time. You sort of only, you don't really have a choice in it and you have to figure out how to love them. You know, mm. um, but but I think it was, I mean, they were good. They were all good people, and it was um, it wasn't hard to uh, to figure out how to love them. I mean, it sort of came naturally. Wow! So now th this is an incredible amount of life packed in before you're out of high school now. So while you're in high school, back to Brookline, mm -hmm. your activities and interests are writing, running, and music. Right. So, I mean, you're, you're springing into life, coming 17, 18 years old, and you're forming your own opinions on this world now and, and a tremendous amount of experience, which you've gone through. So what, what was going to be your endeavor when you left high school? Well, um, I worked on the, the student newspaper, but to tell you the truth, my real sort of dream was, um, I think like a lot of kids, I dreamed of becoming a rock star. I was in a school band, um, I played guitar, and I just imagined myself up on stage. Um, you know, I, as it turned out during high school, I had only one live gig. Um, uh, I played with uh, a, a friend of mine, um, Sush Prusti, who, was, uh, who later became a doctor. We uh, performed at the high school talent show you know, it was a pretty big crowd. It probably was like four or 500 people. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now, what, what was the name that your band played under? <laughs> um, you're, you're what, 17, 18 years old? I'll, yeah, I'll just I couldn't, throw that I, in there. Right. I, well, I, I couldn't make up my mind. And so at the last minute when they were, they needed a name for the program, I called us uh, Blue Wind, which was after a uh, Jeff Beck song. Oh, wow. Okay, so Jeff Beck influence. He was tremendous. Yeah. I liked him. Connect with us on LinkedIn. Be our friend on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You are listening to Vince Cortez. We just want you to leave your mark. Okay, so now you're playing this and you're feeling it. So you go to the University of Toronto and mm -hmm. you're studying English literature. So share with me what you began doing with your writing and your work once you got to uh, University of Toronto. Well, first of all, it was a real culture change. Um, it was like going to England, only this time I was completely by myself. And um, one of the things that I remember vividly is that uh, when my dad dropped me off at the airport, I, at that point, I'd never been to Toronto. I never went there for an interview. 
Um, I just sent an application and I didn't find out until July that I'd gotten in. So when I got on that plane, I didn't know what I was in for. I had no idea what the city would look like. I barely knew what I was going to go through in terms of the student visa. And I remember sitting in my seat and going, oh my God, what did I get myself into? You know? And the thing was that within a few days, um, and I think a lot of people have this experience with college, you meet all these uh, new people and the experience just sort of sweeps you off your feet. All of a sudden, you know, I could do uh, anything that I wanted to really. I mean, there were a lot of, <laughs> I, my first, yeah, my first year of college, uh, I worked for, um, that first year I worked on student, uh, the student radio station. Uh, I had a little show. Um, I played, it was a, a mix of jazz and alternative music and like 80s stuff. Did you have a call tag? No, nah, it was just, um, it was just the Mark Johnson show or something. Okay. Not even sure I called it like a, a show. At, at the time that we started this, we weren't like, big time over the air. We uh -huh. were connected around the university through a series of like speakers that were in different oh, okay. buildings. So it was very low tech, um, but it was great fun. Um, I, was, I was nervous when I had a, a mic in front of me, but you know, I learned how to sort of talk and improvise. And I think every time that you try something different, you, you kind of cross this bridge and you build up this, um, this experience. Um, I like to compare it to uh, when you're learning to play guitar. At first, uh, all the chords that you make, um, pressing your fingers down, it, it hurts to press the strings. And over time, you build up these calluses and then it gets easier and easier. And I think that's the same with a lot of experiences in, in life. You just, um, you kind of, you go through a little bit of pain and you build up, you know, some strength, some, some calluses, and, and then it's not hard anymore, you know? And that was kind of what college was, was like for me. Um, I, I was very awkward my first couple of years. I was a good year younger than everyone else that I went to school with because, uh, Canada had a grade 13 at that time. Oh, yeah, I see. And so I got in there. Uh, <laughs> I started school when I was 17. Wow. You were seriously battle tested. So the United States, then in England, then back to the States, now to Canada, and just 17. So, I mean, I'll, you're talking a lot of life under your belt. So what I want to do here is I want to talk about your Pulitzer Prize and how that came to be. But I want you to kind of fill me in on here after college and share with me some of the stops you had with your journalism. Like you were at the Milwaukee Journal and I like your uh, Provincetown advocate as always a core story. So if you would, please. Sure. Um, well, the first thing I should say is that when I was um, working on the student paper at the university, I just totally fell in love with this idea of like being a Watergate type investigative reporter. I really nerded out on it. I went to the library and looked up the original Washington Post uh, Watergate stories. 
Um, but I got a lot of reje rejection letters after college, like 30 or 40. And so I end up at this very small weekly on the tip of Cape Cod in Provincetown. And the very first assignment I had as a reporter was covering a sewage commission meeting. And instead of like being like this Watergate reporter, like being in an underground garage, talking to secret sources, I'm in this meeting where they're talking about sewage and septage. And I, I, I don't know what the difference is between the two of them. And so the very first question that I asked as a uh, so-called professional reporter, I went up and after the meeting and I asked, what's the difference between sewage and septage? And the guy who was chairman of the committee said, one's chocolate milk and the other's chocolate pudding. So that was like my big first quote, you know, <laughs> as a reporter. And I thought, man, this is not Watergate. I, I'm going to be, I'm going to work my way up, you know, from, from the bottom. But I think it was, in a way, that was a good experience because um, I got to make a lot of the mistakes that I made um, at smaller, more forgiving newspapers. And I think that everybody, when they get into their careers, you make mistakes and it's, there's a disadvantage to starting off at a big time place. Um, you know, whether it's a big newspaper, a big theater company, or, you know, a big band or something. Um, when, you, when you have that kind of pressure and you're very, very young, um, you're going to make mistakes and it really matters how the people who are your supervisors sort of bring you along. Um, I was very lucky. I had uh, my, my first supervisor in Provincetown was not great. Uh, he, he had a really bad temper and threw things at us and whatnot. But the second editor I had in a place called Haverhill, Massachusetts, uh, it's on the Massachusetts, New Hampshire border. He was this great father figure. And uh, the people who worked for him, we were very small staff. Um, but he was one of these guys that um, the staff would do anything for him. Um, we'd work on days off. Um, there was a big fire that occurred on the one day that we didn't, um, we didn't publish. We didn't have a Sunday paper. And there was this huge fire downtown on a Saturday. And so we're all, you know, enjoy, enjoying the day off. And yet everybody, as soon as they heard the news, and actually for us, my wife and I, we saw the fire. It was actually um, about a block from where we lived. And just the entire staff just gathered, made a plan. The editor showed up. You know, it wasn't like at big newspapers where, you know, some gruff guy is, you know, making calls and they're saying, you know, you get out of bed, you know, everybody just went because, you know, they would do, would, would have done anything for this editor. I mean, he was so devoted to reporting the news. He set some really core uh, foundation for you as far as moving forward, because um, touching on your work now where you go to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and it sounds like a lot of what you had experienced right in that initial job, what you just shared with us, is what happened when this work at this place turns into a Pulitzer Prize winner. So can you share with me um, 
what happens when you get into Milwaukee? Sure. In Milwaukee, for the first couple of years, I did um, uh, general assignment breaking news, and you're under a lot of pressure. I got sent, um, I had to drive with another reporter to New York on September 11th. Um, I got sent to cover the uh, Space Shuttle Columbia disaster uh, in Houston. Those sort of experiences, you're flying into a city you don't know, renting a car, and somehow trying to find your way to a hotel in time to plug in your laptop and write a story. As time went on in uh, Milwaukee, I got so that I could do what I really liked, which was work on longer term stories. And the story that, uh, that ended up being a Pulitzer Prize winner was uh, about this young uh, boy who had this, uh, basically it was a new disease to medicine. No one had ever seen it before. And his doctors who worked at uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin made a decision to use um, his genetic sequence. It's like the genetic script that we all have mm -hmm. um, to try and figure out what was causing his disease. And it, it basically turned out to be the first case in which all of a person's genes were sequenced and used to diagnose and successfully treat a disease. Um, this was a four-year-old kid. And, um, the and what disease, year was this? This was in um, 2010 was the year that we wrote the story. Oh, so over a decade ago, this has right. been implemented into the medicine world. Yeah, it became a, a, a huge thing. And it was really surprising that it started in, in Wisconsin. A lot of people, I think, you know, would not guess that. Usually these type of things, people assume that they happen at MIT or Harvard. Yeah. Well, I would imagine the intrigue on that because that's so groundbreaking at that time, uh, the amount of attention that you would attract with that. If you are listening from Australia, Florida, or just from around the corner. From East Coast to West Coast outlets, if you're not to the dirty South straight, make a left and body, body. Contact us, leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez. You come out of this now, you're, you're writing another book. Now you have a, uh, the, the book that came from the, the, the Pulitzer Prize work was One in a Billion? Correct. And yeah. we can find this on Amazon? Yep. Okay, and then, so this was technically the, the first person in the world to be remanufactured? Think of your, your genome kind of as the blueprint. Okay. That, that determines everything, like the color of your eyes, how tall you are, you know, plus all these diseases that you are susceptible to. And he was the first person whose uh, genes were sequenced and uh, used. Basically, our, our genes, when we get a disease, often it's because there's something wrong in the script. The um, the, the sequence that we have that we call our genome has a mistake, like a typo. And in this case, um, our, our whole genome is basically 3.2 billion chemical bases. He had one that was off place, wow. one that was out of place. And it, it was like the most infinitesimally small typo. Wow. And that's what caused this horrific disease. Wow. Every time he would eat, he would get these holes in his intestine. 
and it would actually uh, leach uh, fecal matter onto his stomach. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. So just an incredible piece of work. So now you go on here and at uh, the age of 35, um, you experience some depression. Mm-hmm. Can you share with me? I mean, because it sounds like everything's going fantastic for you. Well, and life is moving forward step by step. So um, what, what was your experience with that? Well, how would you describe it? Well, the depression actually happened um, in 1994. So it was a good um, 15 years or so before the Pulitzer work. But okay. I actually think that it was very important to me becoming the kind of person and being able to do what I was able to do. I discovered the depression because I had just come to a new job in Providence, Rhode Island. And it was a place that was, it was a much better newspaper than the paper I'd been at. And I wanted so badly to make a big impression all at once. Mm. And I tried way too hard. And I made something like four mistakes I had to print four corrections in the first five months. Um, some of them were, were small things, but a correction is like a reporter's nightmare. I mean, if you misspell a name or you get an address wrong or any kind of like factual thing, that's something that would cause me to wake up in the middle of the night, you know, um, scared. You know, I would think, you know, did I make a mistake on this? Mm. And I think when I, started by not making a great first impression, but in fact, by doing the opposite, by struggling, it took the wind out of my sails. It was like getting knocked, you know, like getting a, a punch in the solar plexus. All of a sudden, I kind of lost my, my sense of balance and who I was. And I felt extremely sort of alone and unable to sort of figure out what was going wrong inside my own mind. I, um, going to see a therapist was a big deal for me because it was something at first that there was still a uh, stigma about it. And yeah. I really didn't want people to know about it. And yet, you know, early on, I was, I was working in this small bureau. And um, when I got put on medication, my um, insurance company, they're calling me at my office and asking me all these things before they put me on um, what was essentially, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, well, it, the generic- Antidepressant? Name. Yeah, an antidepressant. It was, it's, the, the kind I'm on is called fluoxetine, which is like, um, it's a generic uh, Prozac. Let me ask you this, because a lot of this, just touching on the drug part of this real quick. Sure. This take up to two weeks to get into your system before they take effect. Because for yeah. someone who's depressed, that can be kind of confusing because the whole expression is, is you're waiting for it to kick in and you're having a mental issue. And it's like, I would say in that window before it kicks in, it can be very trying because now your stress level is a depressed person could possibly go up. So I never really understood that about antidepressants. I believe that's probably true. I have to tell you though, that my experience, the first time I went on Prozac, um, I had 
uh, I was still at, in Providence and I'd been moved to a different office mm. and I was starting a different job after all, you know, struggling. And I was, I was terrified. Wow. And the way that, that the Prozac worked was unbelievable. That first week I came in and I'm all nervous and everything. And the uh, town that I was covering was crazy. All sorts of crazy things were happening. And I would work like 12 hour days and I would come home feeling great. Like saying, you know, bring it on. Yeah. You know, I feel great. Yeah. It may have been that it was just the fact that I knew something that I was taking a medication that was supposed to help me. Um, but it seemed like the impact was immediate. Let's go here. So are you currently still on any form of depression medication? Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, three of them. Fluoxetine, which is, a, um, which is the uh, generic version of Prozac. Um, a generic version of uh, Wellbutrin. And a uh, drug called clonazepam. And clonazepam is interesting. It's because I have these nightmares where I act out my dreams. Oh. And so I'll actually, like I've fallen out of bed oh, wow. because I'm running away. Yeah. And one time I actually accidentally bopped my wife. Um, and what, what clonazepam does is that I, I guess that it calms your system down. And so I don't have, even if I'm, having these terrible sort of flight or fight dreams, you know, where something's chasing me, I'm not moving like this, running and throwing. I mean, I've had right. dreams where I- You're I, animating your dreams, sir. They're coming out in your physicality. I actually punched um, the night table next to me a couple of times and hurt my- My head. goodness. Would you say then that your level of depression is still great. And then besides your medications you share there, what are some of the other methods that you're uh, using with your depression? The way I look at it is that my depression is under control. Um, it's not something that um, uh, I, I thought early on, I had this naive idea that it was something you get cured of, right? Uh -huh. um, but it's not, it's really something that's there, that's uh, integral to who you are. It's there with you for the rest of your life. And it's a matter of how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. And the pills are one way of dealing with it. Um, the therapy is another way. Um, talking about some of the things that turn, that were probably root causes uh -huh. of, you know, of the, of my depression. Um, and learning sort of strategies for ways to cope. I mean, I'm starting a new job on Monday and I'm definitely, I'm scared. I'm, you know, I'll be honest with you. And where's but, your new job? Well, at the Washington Post. Washington Post, you've arrived on the, the upper level, the upper right. echelon. That's now, where that always me, I, I do want to mention one thing here, though. You, you recently have a new book. Correct. And it was just published January 2022 through The Earth Gives Way. Now, can you share with me just a, a spackling of what this book's about and what was your sure. motivation behind it? Sure. Um, the book is what uh, what's called like a climate apocalypse 
um, novel. It's examining what might be a worst case scenario if we don't act on climate change. And so it, it starts basically with these catastrophic hurricanes that force a huge migration um, from the East Coast to the center of the country. Um, and also um, wildfires that force a similar migration from the West Coast, again, toward the center of the country. And the plot for the book is that uh, these uh, strangers, nine strangers meet at this old um, abandoned uh, retreat center in a small area in Michigan, like completely rural area. And they sort of arrive there kind of almost by fate, one by one. And they arrive after having had all these terrible experiences, um, losing their faith in other people. Um, I kind of envision the worst case scenario for climate change being like the polarization that we've seen in this country, only a, a thousandfold. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think of how divided people are about say uh, President Trump and whether you like him or whether you hate him, just imagine that the dividing line is that some people um, didn't believe the scientists and kept doing what they, what they were doing. And the other people blame them because now we've lost everything. You know, mm. we've lost, you know, the, the, the earth that we had. Wow. You know, and that things like cell phones and the internet and things like that go down basically because of the chaos of a migration. I mean, when people run, they don't worry about like, oh, I work with the electrical grid. I'm supposed to stay here. People run when they run for, chaos. for safety, right? Wow, very good. If you have a story to share, tell us how are you going to leave your mark? Contact us, leave your mark with our host, Vince Cortez, be our guest. So as I ask all my guests when they come on, how would you like to leave your mark? Well, this is going to sound corny, but I, I really do believe it. I, I'd like to be a good person who helped uh, make other people's lives a little better. Um, and I think that writing... Uh, is a very good way of helping people to understand each other better, something that, that we really need now. And I, I just feel like let's help each other talk about things like why we're here, where we go, what's right or what's good. Let's help each other try to answer these big questions and maybe maybe we'll find some happiness uh, while we're at it. That to me is, I think, w w the role that I'd like to play. I'd like to be part of something like that. I think you're doing a great job. You get some nice work out there and it's proof of what you just said. Oh, well, thank you so much, Vince. It's a, like I said, it's a bit, just a real pleasure getting to talk with you. Your story is interesting from so many angles, and it was going to be difficult for us to get all of your information, and you did great at oh, giving us a little slice of a lot uh, to think about. So really appreciate you coming by. You're doing some great work, and keep it up. Thank you, and the same goes for you. It's such an important 
concept leave your mark. I think that's a great title for a, a podcast. Thank you so much. That everyone should be thinking about. Thanks for listening to Leave Your Mark today. Tune into our next episode of Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez. Be blessed. You just left your mark. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Listen to more episodes on demand. Just click Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez.